Welcome to Reading Around Macroeconomics, except this time we're not going to be reading around macroeconomics. We're going to be reading around geopolitics. My name is Emil Kalinowski, and typically I read a essay, blog post, whatever it is, by a macroeconomist, typically by Jeffrey P. Snyder. But this time I'm reading a essay, eh, I'm going to call it a blog post by George Friedman, multi-time, multi-book writing author, the head of geopolitical futures. And the article in question here is posted on September 10th, 2021, and it is titled John F. Kennedy and the Origin of Wars Without End. I've spent the past few weeks trying to answer a fundamental question. Why did the United States, economically and militarily the most powerful nation in the world, lose three wars during my lifetime? Given that tomorrow is the anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, the immediate cause of the last disastrous war, it is proper that this question be asked and that we all try to answer it. For me, the origin of these wars is to be found in the words from John F. Kennedy's inaugural address. <clears throat> Let every nation know, whether it wishes us well or ill, that we shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe, in order to assure the survival and success of liberty. At the time, it was met with great applause. Kennedy was merely summarizing a moral principle that had become commonplace after World War II. During the conflict, Franklin D. Roosevelt presented the United States as the moral savior of a corrupt world. It's true that the world was corrupt, and it's true that the United States saved the lives of my parents and millions of others. But the war had a powerful geopolitical rationale. If Germany and Japan were not defeated, the security and fundamental interests of the United States would be in danger. Roosevelt meant what he said about salvation, but he carefully calculated the cost of being the savior. The Roosevelt theory of salvation embedded itself at this time. The struggle against the Soviet Union was a moral struggle, but not one beyond the consideration of costs. When he became president, Dwight D. Eisenhower, who was previously Roosevelt's commander in Europe, shared a moral abhorrence of the Soviet Union. But he refused to send U.S. troops to Indochina to support France. He insisted that France and Britain, however morally superior they may be to Egypt, to withdraw from attempting to seize the Suez Canal, and, with meticulous care, he managed to leave office having not engaged in nuclear war. He petted the geopolitical shark, a moral cause carefully calibrated with resources, risks, and rewards. In his inaugural address, Kennedy wrote a blank check from his country. This was the moment the United States left the world of Roosevelt's prudent savior. The United States would, as a matter of principle, bear any hardship to support any friend and oppose any foe to assure liberty. In assuming the burden, he assumed the cost of war if needed, and he did not ask the question of whether our hardships would bring success or failure, and at such a price 
that the nation might not be able to bear it militarily, financially, or morally. It is hard to imagine that he understood the promise he was making. Kennedy's principle was not a meaningless moment in a speech. It expressed a sensibility that had emerged in World War II in which war was an instrument to be used against evil. It was easy to regard America's enemies as evil because they were. There was no tension between the geopolitical imperative of the war and the moral imperative. It was after Kennedy's speech that the principles of World War II began to emerge as conscious principles, and this had dominated American strategy imperfectly, as such things always do. There were three wars following Kennedy's stated principles that lasted for many years and were unsuccessful, Vietnam, Afghanistan, and Iraq. But they were only the long and agonizing cases. The United States used military force in Iran during the hostage crisis, but failed to achieve its desired outcome. The United States invaded Grenada. It succeeded, I suppose. The United States sent troops to Beirut and withdrew when hundreds of Marines were killed by explosives. The United States succeeded in Desert Storm. It conducted an extended bombing campaign in defense of Kosovo, and it has sent troops into Libya, Syria, Chad, and Northern Africa. I am no pacifist, but the tempo of operations imposed on the U.S. military and the widely varying environments it went into, frequently with a mission that was opaque, made little sense. In World War II, there was a clear moral and geopolitical reason for combat, a clear if flexible strategy that would withstand reversals. Most important, the military was configured for this war. Training a force takes time, and a force cannot be trained for whatever comes up. Having been trained to face the Soviets in Germany, the U.S. military was then unreasonably asked to fight limited wars in the jungle, the desert, and so forth. In other words, it was asked to go anywhere to fight any foe and protect any friend. So that's what it did. In Vietnam, a military built around armor and clear fields of fire was thrown into a jungle that curbed numbers and limited visibility. In Afghanistan, what started, and should have ended, as a covert mission conducted by the CIA and Special Operation Forces ballooned into something quite different. In Iraq, the military was never trained or equipped for a battle that featured improvised explosive devices and light vehicles. The thing is, it takes time and experience to develop a concept for fighting a war, identify the troops needed for a war, and train a force to fight a war. Eisenhower's mission was to conquer Germany. He refused to act for over two years. Marshall first trained the army for the war at home, and then Eisenhower trained them again in North Africa, losing battles and learning about the Germans. The army that landed at Normandy and the navy that delivered and protected them were built for that moment and even then suffered failures. To have landed an army there trained for Vietnam would have been insane. Even so, in World War II, the U.S. emerged with a sense of invincibility. 
The first duty of the senior commanders was to ruthlessly extract this feeling from the military and from its civilian leadership. If you go into combat without an appropriate force and with a sense of invincibility, you may not lose, but you won't win. And if you go in unprepared for terrain, weather and horrors of the battlefield, the failures will mount. The politicians will deny any failures, the machine will pump more soldiers into the war, and the public will rightly determine that the war was a horrible failure. And then the soldiers who broke their hearts trying to win will feel betrayed by their nation. The more wars the U.S. fights in shorter intervals, the less likely it is to win. Kennedy's doctrine, then, should be expunged from our minds. That doctrine leads to endless war and continued defeat. War is not an action designed to do good. It is the use of overwhelming force against an opponent that threatens your nation's fundamental interest. War is not an act for, of charity for deserving friends, not even an act of vengeance for a vicious enemy. A fundamental foundation for peace is an unsentimental understanding of geopolitics, the discipline that distinguishes sentiment from necessity, capability from boast, and the enemy who matters from the one who doesn't. We are now more at peace than usual. Minor conflicts in Africa and the Middle East still rage. Only a few are justified. The others are undertaken out of habit, a bad habit at that. America first has somehow become an ugly concept. It is as with children. Whoever does not put his children first above other children is morally questionable. Those who do not put their nation ahead of others are in my view the same. Once your own love is cared for and you have the ability, helping another is praiseworthy. But nothing is more immoral than putting others first and failing to protect your own. Which brings us back to Afghanistan. There are those who argue that leaving Afghanistan puts American lives at risk from future terrorist attacks. But terrorists are tied to no country, and their numbers are small. They keep it that way to gather weapons and plan their operations, usually from the country they intend to attack, not a country half a world away. Kennedy assumed that the U.S. could afford to fight any enemy anywhere. It can't. And Washington better be certain that the next war it fights can be won, that the next enemy is actually an enemy. Friedman's title of this article is John F. Kennedy and the Origin of Wars Without an End, which of course makes me think of The Forever War, 1974 novel by American author John Haldeman. That novel happens to be my fifth favorite book that I've read this year. I keep a record of which ones I've read and how I rank them. And back in 1974, when it was published, it swept the award categories and won the Nebula Award, the Hugo Award, and the Locus Awards. And it was so good that when the sequel was published in 97, it won the Nebula Award again, the Hugo Award again, it didn't win the Locus Award, but it did win the John W. Campbell Memorial Award. So two novels, three wins, unbelievable. I read it this year and it was fabulous. 
It felt as if it was written yesterday. The author did a fantastic job that Mr. Friedman brings up here in this story, in this in this blog post of his, about the alienation that soldiers feel in a war that drags on endlessly, especially when they return home. And Haldeman did a masterful job. By the way, all this happens in space. So he set it off into the future and they return back to Earth. And it is what an amazing job he did in making the reader feel as if you would not want to be in this world. Totally disconnected. You didn't want anything to do with this world. And what do you have left? What you know, your soldiers, your platoon, your team, and the war itself. That's what feels comfortable. Uh, anyways, it was a highly recommended novel. I love reading Mr. Friedman's work, who's also a science fiction fan. And I have not yet read Forever Peace, which is the sequel. So nobody spoil it for me in the comments section. Let me know what you thought of this particular article, which is not macroeconomics, but we're often asked in the comments section of YouTube, hey, why don't you talk about geopolitics? We don't talk about geopolitics because there are people whose whole lives center around writing about geopolitics and they are experts and they are, they're, you know, we don't compare. What could we offer that Friedman, Alison Federko, who was on our show before, uh, Velina Chakarova, what can we offer that they don't already talk about? That's why we're going to have them on it as guests in the future. I've gone on too long. I'm prattling. Hope you enjoyed it, and I'll talk to you again soon.